Hello there, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the 1201 podcast. I'm joined, as always, by Callum Watt. Hello. Ollie Walwyn. Hello, everyone. And Bradley Allsop. Hi, folks. And so it's been another week in politics. As always, we get the ups and downs of the current pandemic we find ourselves in. Uh, once again, we're getting a lot of, uh, well, sound bites from the from the government when it comes to getting back to work, getting back to school. They seem adamant on getting people out of the, their homes and back to school and work. Um, and that's caused a lot of, uh, well, I suppose a lot of strife amongst parents who have been queuing down Lincoln High Street, as we've, if you've seen the pictures, and high streets across the country rushing to get that school uniform. Obviously, socially distanced, but the queue's going on for some cases four to five hours. But I suppose this has led to a lot of people, um, not just people on the left or in, in the centre, but people within the Conservative Party, rather annoyed with the flip-flopping within the Conservative government. Uh, even Charles Walker, a deputy chair within the 1922 committee, which is a committee of backbench Conservative MPs, has been calling out the government on their constant U-turning. Now, if you remember right back to the start of the pandemic when they started to close schools, they were speaking about schools only opening when there will be when it's fully safe. One of the uh, measures that they had in place for that was having the tra- the test, track, and trace app in place. And as we know, that app has failed, and it's still in its trial period. It's been trialed in a few areas across the country, notably the Isle of Wight. But we haven't yet seen a national rollout, and yet we're seeing a continuation with pushing on with getting people back to work, back to school. And that's what the government seems adamant on. I suppose, Callum, is it sensible that we're continuing to push on with getting people back to school as soon as possible? Is it safe? I I don't think, well, trade unions are still uh, trying to negotiate on it, as I understand it. Um, I don't understand why we're not continuing to do more distance learning and focusing on that. Um, I think that the the, the whole the trouble with with, it, with the whole government response to this pandemic um, is that they have in their minds a way the economy works, and that is. Um, Mum and dad, they go out to work during the day um, and then the kids go to school. So I think it's nothing really to do with the education of the children, in my view. Um, it's an, an everything to do with the fact that schools in the current or, or the, the old pre-COVID economy, if you like, um, operate uh, as a sort of child daycare. Um, and that's why that I think that's why they're so insistent that that children should go back should go back to school. Um, it's not necessarily the safest option. Nothing has changed over the last few months. Although yes, it's true, children are uh, much 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 less likely to die um, or or even get sick really from from um, COVID nineteen. They are still biological humans. They can still pass it on. Um, so they are um, the government's effectively making children uh, a public health risk. Um, so no, it's not really safe. The only way that um, you could not send them back to school though would be to continue doing the furlough scheme, continue having people uh, working from home. Now actually, I, I think that would be a, a better idea, but obviously we can see the, the impacts that's had on on the economy. So that's what the that's what the government's kind of trying to weigh up, and that would be difficult for any government to be fair. Um, but there are also, I think, it's an unnecessary risk. Um, I I think that on balance, if there was a, if there was a, a Labour government in power, I imagine we'd be pursuing the same policy that we were uh, pursuing um, several months ago. Um, which was uh, having only the children of key workers going to school um, and distance learning for everybody else, um, I would hope. Yeah, and I suppose it's a case of, um, obviously, the Labour Party's been very keen to talk about 
getting things back to normality and talking about the exit plan, certainly at the start of the pandemic, mm. that sort of narrative has been, um, it's been less obvious in, in recent weeks and months. But I suppose what what we can see from what the government's doing is that they're, they, as you, as you spoke about the daycare sort of model of education, it's not a, they're talking about students getting back because they've fallen behind, but ultimately it is about enabling people to get back to work. It seems to be going hand in hand here that people have to get back to work for the sake of the economy. Therefore their children have to get to back to school. So their parents are freed up. I suppose, Ollie, I'd ask you, um, do you think that it's it's basically the government have weighed up the pros and the cons and regardless of the risk, they're just going on with it, ploughing ahead because ultimately in their ideology, they see the economy as being the be all and end all. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. Um, it is, it's as if they are just kind of, they're pushing it um, and they're, they're seeing how much they can get away with and, and seeing when there'll be that bite back from the virus. But um, it's uh, it's absolutely as you say. I think they're they're trying to um, push the kids back to school. I don't think it's a, a genuine concern for their their education. I don't know Gavin Williamson's uh, quoted quite a few times saying it's about the children. It's um, it's it's going to lower their life chances if they don't go back to school like at the start of September. I don't think that it's that at all. I think it is, it is very much in the sense of the economy. That's all they really, really care about, in my opinion. Um, I think what what was it was dependent on um, on having a an effective track and trace system, which we just don't have. So I just don't think there is the the kind of infrastructure that is there, the support systems that we need to be able to go back. It's just, it's just not there. So I don't think it's safe. Hmm. And and what would you say would be the um, the conditions in which would be ideal for people to return to school and work safely? Then, what would be your red lines? Um, there would be, I mean, obviously socially distanced. I don't know how it would work with classrooms in in schools because that's a difficult um, environment. I think. The government last last week did a U-turn on the on the masks, which is obviously a good thing. I think we should be wearing masks in schools. Um, I just think they just don't have what we need. Um, yeah, yeah, and and I suppose this speaking to people that do work in teaching, I've I've understood really the amount of stress and the amount of um, burden that's been put on them because they don't know what's going to happen in September and onwards. They know they're eff- effectively being ordered back to work as teachers. They don't know how big the classes could be. I know a number of schools are going to continue to maybe carry on with the bubbles. But it's, again, people working in education are, are, are still left high and dry and basically their unions are trying to defend them. Bradley, you wanted to come in. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Callum was right earlier when he said, you know, for any government, these aren't easy decisions to, to have to make. Um, they're, they're difficult decisions. Um, and I, I would have a lot more sympathy for the government if, if it had shown any sort of, you know, tiny degree of actually trying to genuinely tackle some of these issues. You know, we, we've seen, I think it's always welcome if a government makes a U-turn in the right direction, but the, the number, the frequency um, of them has been appalling throughout the pandemic. And these are issues that you could see coming down the line. You know, the, with the A-levels U-turn, you could see that coming down the line. Um, you know, experts were warning them about this before. And um, I think a lot of people see a pandemic as something that, can, you know, you often hear people say, oh, no one could ever have predicted this. But the fact is that experts did frequently predict it in the years running up to this and, and frequently urged governments around the world to do more. Um, and as we can see, we were one of the, the least well prepared for it. And um, so, you know, it, it, I think if, if they've been even just a small degree of, of trying to uh, trying to prepare for these things and, and trying to be aware, I, I could have more sympathy for what are obviously difficult decisions the governments have to make. I think a key area of this is is the the trace and contact system. It, it's still not there. Um, you know, if you if you look at the reports in The Guardian and other places, we're, we're far behind countries like Germany or South Korea 
um, in, in terms of being able to trace effectively contacts of people that have been diagnosed um, as, as carrying uh, COVID-19. You know, so, so how, you know, we're opening up the economy again. We're talking about kids going back to school next week. How can we do any of that if we cannot effectively trace the majority of people that come into contact with someone with COVID? I, I just don't see how we can do it. Um, and the government has had months to get, it should have been in place months ago. It's had a, a summer where we've had a drop in cases to, to get its act together and it still doesn't seem to have managed it. Um, so I, I think in, in terms of conditions for, for schools being reopened, I think a, an effective um, te- test and, and trace system is, is absolutely key there. Um, and I don't think we're anywhere near that yet. Mm. Um, an interesting sort of side note to uh, how schools are trying to tackle this. Um, there's in in my old borough in London, they've they've introduced a system of closing roads outside schools, so parents aren't flocking in in their cars, and instead people are walking and being more socially distant. I don't know how that would play out, but it's quite an interesting approach, and I know it's called a lot of outrage of people that prefer to maybe use the car to get straight to school, avoiding public transport. So I don't know what, what your take would be on that. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good idea. Um, I think I think we there, there is a real danger, I think. In the early days, I didn't have much sympathy for the argument of our kids need to be in school. Because um, I think, you know, I don't think we should have an education system where kids can't be away from schools for a couple of months and and you know if if they are that like irreparably damages their education i don't i don't think that's the sign of a very healthy education system that kids can't take a couple of months out from it um but obviously we've gone beyond that now you know we're we're potentially discussing if there's a second wave or or if it's safe to open schools again in september so i i do think at that point if if kids aren't able to be in in some form of, of normal educational um context in in september onwards I, I do think that is actually going to be damaging for for potentially a generation of children, um, so I, I, I do I do have sympathy with that argument, um, but at the same time the government is in almost entirely to blame for that situation because they've absolutely failed to put the things in place that they need to put in place, such as the the test and trace system and all the uh, previous issues with with how they combated the pandemic from you know the late lockdown onwards, um, all of that has contributed to a, a situation that now is not safe people to go to school so so it's entirely you know in the hands of the government there yeah and i suppose talking about how students are being disadvantaged by missing out on their education callum i'd ask you is is it because we're so reliant on having exams for our students that it's so difficult for them to get the grades that they need to progress to get to their their colleges or a levels or to their chosen universities because we're that reliant on the exam system that the minute you can't hold exams in a secure environment as they like to do then it completely undermines our education system in this country yeah i think we um, probably do need to think about the way that uh, children are assessed i mean i'm not a teacher um, so uh, I'm not a huge expert on uh, on how we uh, assess children. Um, I know that a lot of um, I think trade unions objected to the change uh, to having pure A levels. So when I, I don't know because you're a couple of years younger than me, but when I went to sixth form, for instance, you had to do um, AS levels uh, in the first year and then A levels in the following year. Um, so you had uh, uh, you had two sets of exams which you could which you could sort of work from uh, in that respect, and I think that was that was a healthier way of doing it. Um, I remember there was more of an emphasis in my time on casework as well, um, and the, it felt like there was more of a balance between exams and casework, although it was still pretty exam heavy. And the the trouble with exams obviously is that you can just have a bad day. And that's it. You know, that's your that's your that's your grade. And the sort and the, the system sort of bends over backwards to find solutions. Like you can go back to your AS levels, and uh, and you can do retakes and things like that. Um, really, though, all exams are 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 a memory test. It's not really a great um, test of aptitude. Um, and we can see that, uh, and we can kind of see that when you look at. 
um, the results that you get from private schools, for instance, or public schools, as we um, sometimes call them, um, where people have clearly, when you have the money to do it, you can uh, pay a private tutor to get your kids to pass the exam. Um, so they might be uh, as thick as pigs will, um, but they can still get into Oxford because um, they were taught to write this specific phrase uh, in this specific box rather than have any having any real creative sorts of thinking and so on. Um, so the way we uh, classify and grade um, our children is clearly a little bit broken. There should be an opportunity uh, to think about how we can how we can uh, do things differently. I think that one of the reasons why we have so many exams, of course, is because uh, the government doesn't really trust teachers. They somehow think that they're going to um, unfairly uh, grade them upwards, um, which is a real professional insult. But the other uh, thing that the Conservatives have introduced really since the 1980s um, is league tables, of course, competition between schools. So there's not just um, a human tendency, maybe, to uh, upgrade your own students, but there's an actual uh, incentive to do so, uh, a systematic incentive to do so. And that's why we have the exams, so that schools can't, uh, in, uh, can't cheat, as it were. Um, so we have this really toxic system where uh, we have... Um, a broken way of assessing people, which is there to uh, to basically deal with uh, a broken system of competition within schools, which shouldn't be necessary. Education should be about collaboration and about teaching people to be good citizens um, and to and to enjoy learning, um, which it absolutely doesn't do at the moment. So. Perhaps this pandemic really is an opportunity to think about it. Obviously, this government's not going to do anything about it, but uh, in the long run, uh, it might have positive effects on the way our children are assessed. You'd hope so. And I, I came from when I was doing my A-levels, we were in what they were calling the transition period. So two of my A-levels, I sat in the new system, which was effectively mostly exams. I had two bits of coursework throughout the whole two years that I was there and then the um, other subject I took we had AS then A levels so I was sort of in that halfway house between the two and I can tell you that the older system was far more forgiving um, in terms of how you could progress through two years because ultimately everything weighing upon a final test or a final few exams at the end of a two-year process is, is 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 punishing and as as we've seen this year it, it has negatively impacted people because it's a long it's a long slog it's a long long journey i can assure you um but it's not just in primary and secondary education that we've seen a, a lot of disagreements around covid we've also seen that in the university sector there's been a lot of outrage as to how uh, universities are putting on their their COVID measures in terms of when they come back this September and October. So we've had the UCU come out um, in the in the last few days, and they've said that some of the actions taken by universities risks quote an avalanche of COVID cases, which could be the equivalent in the second wave of the care home scandal that we saw in the first wave. So I suppose Bradley, being somebody that works in uh, in, an, in a students union and somebody that's been to university relatively recently, uh, what's your take on what the UCU have said? Yeah, I mean, I oh, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah I can hear you. I've just got a message saying lost connection to server, but apparently that's not true. <laughs> if I cut out, <laughs> that's probably why. Um, yeah, so I, I think, as with schools, it, it is a really tricky situation. And I think, for, from what I've seen personally, um, at, at where at where I work, I think, you know, based on that and, and other things I've seen online, I think universities have, have taken a fair bit of time to, to think about this and, and to consider if it's safe for staff and students and, and how social distancing can work, how provision of, of what students should expect from a course should work doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to 
the right answers have, have been achieved in all those situations. But but I do think a, a fair bit of work has, has happened. I don't think universities are just sort of, I don't think vice chancellors are just throwing open the doors again and saying, you know, welcome to a new cohort. I, I think there has been a fair bit of work behind the scenes to, to try and think about these issues. I mean, from, from what I've seen at where, uh, where I work, I, I think probably it will be as safe there for people as as any indoor public venues are at the moment. Um, you know, like it will be as safe as going to, to Tesco or, or, or something like that. So I, I suppose you can make you can have your own opinion on, on whether you think it's safe um, in, in any public indoor venues at the moment. Um, I, I don't think it is perfectly safe. I think you know, anywhere indoors at the moment is, is a risk. Um, but we, we are at that point in the pandemic where I think we need to start balancing the, the risk of spreading with trying to gain some things back. Um, and I, I don't think there's always easy answers for that. I, I think there are concerns um, for, for some natures of the university experience. So I think, you know, l- large crammed in lecture halls, um, as far as I'm aware, aren't going to be happening um, anytime soon. Um, but I, I think there's the other, there's sort of the social aspect as well, isn't there? Um, so, you know, if, if students are having house parties or, or things like that, um, is, is there a danger there for there to be to be a real um, spread in the virus? Uh, I, I don't really think that's completely in the control of universities. Um, I'm, I'm sure uh, universities will, will be putting out stuff at the time that make it clear to students they can't do that sort of thing. But but I don't think the universities can really control whether students listen to that advice or not. Um, so so yeah. I, I think I think there are risks that come with with opening up universities again, but but I I think there are ways of managing them, um, and we we do need to consider whether you know any a complete closing of universities maintained throughout the next term. Does that trade off with what? with what risks it mitigates well I, i'm not i'm i don't know if it does um and, and obviously there'll be a lot of online provision as well and the other side of the coin is that um, a lot of students aren't thrilled about that prospect um about be, not you know not being with their peers not being face to face with teaching staff as much as they could be um so i don't really have an answer to be honest i, I think it's a really complicated position um and I, I think it's it'll be the job of you know people in the student movement of NUS of students unions of, of, of other student groups to sort of really watch how their institution makes the calls over the next few months and and to to make sure that's done in consultation with students that it that it's done safely. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think a, a a nationwide opposition to universities opening again like UCU seem to be calling for. I don't know if I would agree with that. Yeah, I suppose um, I'd sort of echo some of those comments in that I think the biggest concern for a lot of people would be the sort of social side of universities, um, the stuff out of control, out of the control of of, uh, vice chancellors and students unions. Because we know a lot of uh, venues have obviously been shut and they'll remain shut when uh, when students return to campus. Um, if they return to campus in whatever capacity that may be. I know in Lincoln, we've uh, the university has invested in teepees to put around campus, um, which are meant to encourage people to maybe meet up but in a socially distanced yet inside capacity. Um, but obviously, sometimes it, it can be quite looking at comments online about students returning. A lot of people seem to be quite negative and very almost mistrusting of students assuming that we're we're all going to be out partying around people's houses um but i i think that there's certainly a lot more i think there's a lot more now to the whole argument and that some some students much like a, a cross-section of society may flout lockdown rules but yet again a lot of students certainly students i know um have have been following the the rules to the letter and have been very careful to make sure they're properly distancing bradley you wanted to come back yeah, I, I think you're right with that. I, I think there is that attitude, and we've talked about this before, about, about how the, the fear that students are going to be super spreaders um, come September um, ties into all these sort of long-lasting narratives of, of tension in, in university towns between um, local folk and, and students that, that have turned up at freshers. I, I, think, I think that ties into that, this fear of students not listening to the rules and all the rest of it. But actually, in my experience, it... It, students are actually much more likely to to be 
following the guidelines and 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 you know sort of I think I think a lot of students I know uh, maybe I just know a, a bunch of lefties I don't know um but they they seem very much you know to almost see it as, as a moral issue to, to be following the guidelines um and and are actually quite angry when people don't and and a lot of the stuff I've seen online of people not following the rules have sort of been from you know like the gammon folk you know the, the, the ones that vote for the ones that vote for Boris Johnson and, and are in their forties and fifties and, and are clearly in a, a midlife crisis and, and see him and Farage as the solution to that. Um, so, I, you know, it's all it is all a caricature, but you know, if we're throwing them around, in my experience, students and young people have actually been a lot more likely to follow the guidelines than than you know white men in their forties and fifties. So, I don't know if it's completely fair to see students as a, as a as a real danger point for for a super spread. I don't think. Absolutely, Callum. I think um, part of the problem is that uh, it's demographic. Uh, a lot of people who uh, make those complaints about uh, students uh, wouldn't have gone to university themselves. Um, although obviously it's that they should, because it's never too late, of course. Um, but they don't really know what the uh, university students actually have to go to how intense the study program is i think a lot of people think that it's uh, about sitting there smoking pot um and uh, maybe rolling into the occasional lecture um and i'm sure there are uh, some students who, who are like that um but that's not really uh not really the accurate uh, authentic contemporary experience um, that's just what Boris Johnson did back in the 80s. It doesn't necessarily apply to all students now. Yeah, absolutely. And and Ollie, I suppose you've just finished university this, this summer gone. Um, had you been a, a student heading back this September, what, what would be your thoughts? Would you feel safe on campus? Um, n- no, probably not, to be honest. Um, I think this is going to have a massive impact to, to uni life, especially with the social aspects, as, as Bradley and you have said. Um, because, because so much of uni life is about that. It's, it's, you know, it's the societies, it's the, sem- the seminars and the nights out. And I, I don't know, it's, if you didn't have that, then why would anyone go to uni? Why wouldn't anyone just go to an online uni like the, the open uni? So uh, it's definitely worth questioning whether it is safe. Um, it, uh, there's the additional factor of if they uh, are having to learn online, then kind of what are, what are they paying for? Um, you know, all these extortionate fees. Uh, if the If the value of the course wasn't being questioned before, I think it's... Is certainly going to be questioned now, um, but that, that's a separate issue about education, like like being being costing so much. I think that's a really good point, though. I think that there is there is two sides to it, isn't there? There's the making sure students are safe to come back, but also um, are are they actually getting a quality experience? Um, no, no, I, I don't I don't want to necessarily boil it down to is it worth nine thousand pounds? That that sort of whole consumerist sort of thing, but. Uh, are those students actually going to get something that, I mean, it's not going to be equivalent to, to what it would be in another year. That It's just not going to be. Um, but is it as close to as could be reasonably expected? Um, I think I think that's going to be a big question for um, NUS and students unions and, and UCU as well um, over, over the next few months. Because um, we, we could really see, you know, the, the problem that, that we've maybe had with A-levels um, we, we could have a problem when students are coming around to, to receive their grades. You know, students are going into their third year now. Um, are, are we going to see a lot less students getting firsts or two ones um, after this year? Um, I think I think there's going to be a lot of questions that, that we'll need to be asked about how quali- how good the education students are receiving at the university this year is going to be. And then what, what happens if there's a, there's an outbreak? Will there be like a guaranteed quarantine? How will that like affect the learning? Yeah. What if it disadvantages people? Are there going to be any safety measures like what happened at Lincoln where we had a, a safety net grade? Maybe to a, a lesser extent, but these are all kind of questions that, that need answering. And I, I don't think they're going to be answered by, uh, by, getting, by returning students kind of meekly to university to kind of see what happens. I think we need preparation for this organisation. Yeah, I think you know the the lockdown actually sort of happened at a, a reasonably okay time for universities. It was sort of towards the back end of March. The the vast bulk of teaching at most universities will have been done for the year at that point. 
Um, you know, some people on some courses will have missed maybe a few weeks of lectures, um, and and there will have been some people sitting exams that that, that would have played havoc with. But in in terms of where where it could have happened in terms of causing the most disruption, towards the end of March is probably not a terrible date for universities to have had to deal with the first lockdown. What if we get a second lockdown in the you know at the end of October, in the middle of November, when when a lot of students have only really just settled into university at that point? Um, you know what what will that do to the academic year, and what will that do to to the, the education that students receive at that point? Yeah, and 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 as a student going into my third year, that's certainly what's on my mind. Um, if we do get a situation where we have a, a winter outbreak of coronavirus, um, and there's and and effectively we find ourselves in the same situation as we were in in March, online lectures, speaking to a number of people um, in in the university, online lectures. Firstly, there was that question whether they're value for money that a lot of people seem to be interested in, but also are they actually delivering the right amount of content and engaging students enough for them to be able to really get their teeth into the work that they're doing? Um, I certainly found I had a limited number of lectures online, as you say, because we were winding up for the year. But it was a it was an issue because I found myself certainly less engaged because through a screen it's so difficult as we know holding meetings on zoom left right and center the same applies for lectures it's it's difficult to be as engaged as you would be face to face and obviously there's going to have to be some trade-offs at the moment for the sake of social distancing and controlling the spread but there's certainly a lot of a lot of questions that are still yet to be answered for students bradley yeah, uh, I think these are all really important questions. I, I think there is also a real danger of senior management, uh, senior managers at the universities passing the book on to teachers stuff. Um, and and if there are issues with 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 the quality that students are receiving, that that, that is teaching staff that bear the brunt of that anger. Um, and and I don't think that will always be fair. I I think you know ultimately, te- I, I'm sure. I mean, I, I've taught at a university. Um, and, and it's a tough job anyway, but I, I cannot imagine trying to do it in these in these circumstances um, for for all you know for all your classes that, that you have and um, to have to completely adapt modules and all the rest of it. Um, so I, I have no doubt that the vast majority of teaching staff at universities will will have worked their asses off over the summer and 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 will really try hard for students, but they they can only work with what they've got. So I think that there will be. I think if there is a backlash or if there is an unhappiness, I think there is a danger that a lot of that anger might be focused on on the teaching staff and the, and the frontline staff. Um, but ultimately, it's up to senior managers to make sure teaching staff have got the training and have got the resources and, and the equipment that they need to, to do the job um, and that they've worked with, with UCU and they've worked with students' unions and their institutions to, to, to make sure all of that is working for everyone. Um, so I do think that's something we need to watch out for as well, that, that it's not just teaching staff that get it in the neck if students aren't happy with, with what they're receiving. I think that's completely true. And we, we should always be bearing that in mind. And obviously speaking, when we're speaking to peers, certainly in my case, still being a student, it's very easy for a lot of people to be blaming um, the the academic staff that are doing the sort of stuff on the front lines. But they, they always seem to overlook the people at the upper echelons of, of management that are actually the ones coordinating a lot of the response from within the university. And when it comes to looking at Lincoln more locally, we have also seen a, a number of reactions uh, towards coronavirus. I mentioned earlier the TPs that the University of Lincoln has bought to allow more open space that is that is sheltered at least for students to maybe meet in or hold seminars or have lectures. I'm not quite sure what they're for. Um, but the University of Lincoln Students Union have also had a number of decisions to make over the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, they've made, uh, they've said they've made a, a loss of over a million pounds due to a, a loss of revenue through their venues, the Engine Shed, the Barge, the Swan and the Tower Bar. And they, as a result, they've had to lay off 34 members of staff. Now, they've said that this is not going to impact students' experience and their ability to access services from the Students' Union. And they've reiterated that they remain committed to representing students' interests on campus and in the city of Lincoln. But it, it does 
strike you when that many members of staff have been taken away? It, it is going to increase the workload of uh, of staff within the students' union elsewhere who might have to take on these extra roles. So, I mean, Callum, do you do you think that this is going to have a serious impact on how University of Lincoln Students' Union is going to be able to operate, or are they going to ride the wave, as it were? Difficult to see. I mean, I've not really been a member of the Students' Union for a long time. I would certainly, certainly hope so. Yeah, and and obviously the 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 university itself and and the Students' Union have been working hard to balance the books, as it were, to ensure that all the services are continued. Things like the Advice Centre are obviously crucial, certainly at this time, the Advice Centre for academic and non-academic issues that students might face could be almost overwhelmed um, come October time when students return to Lincoln. But I'd, I'd ask I'd ask a similar question to you, Ollie, really, as, as somebody that as I say, has recently left the University of Lincoln. Do you think that the Students' Union has got what it takes to to be able to put on the same level of services despite the uh, the financial losses that it's going to be making, not just over the summer, but going forward without the use of the engine shed and a number of venues? Um, I sure hope so, because uh, I think this is going to be a year where students do need um, in- increased support. Um, I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I was under the impression that Lincoln SU, as a as a students' union, was already quite a, a large organisation. It's absolutely a shame that they've had to um, lay off the staff members. But yeah, I hope that they they can continue to um, to provide services for those students. But I think there's also a, a general feeling of concern because over the past few years um, relations between the SU and students haven't particularly been the greatest with with uh, questionable uh, spending decisions in particular so I, I just wonder whether if they didn't make such quite a risk on uh, buying the, the barge which I think was last year for I think it was about £200,000 could they have afforded to keep some of the staff members I don't know uh, obviously, those are different spending priorities, but I don't know. It just it, it is something that should be kind of questioned. I think. Yeah, and I think that the students' union seem to be realizing that that quite a large organisation as they are has had to really look at itself and see what is necessary for it to go forward and ultimately fulfil its 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 main cause of being a a students union there to represent students and help them in their time of need when they find themselves in, in, in problems during their time at the university. Um, and obviously by losing that, that face as a, uh, as an entertainment company, as a, as a business investing in bars and, and, and restaurants, if you like, and nightclubs, maybe hopefully it's going to really rediscover its, its calling as a real students union and, the services that it puts on will be even better well they've got to be they've got no choice really given the circumstances but hopefully they can do that and maybe being less focused on nightclubs and quack and whatever you want could could be a positive going forward Bradley I suppose you you come from a a uh, students union that's that's certainly a lot smaller than the University of Lincoln um, is there any sort of insight you can share as to how other students' unions are, are faring in this time? Well, I, I think actually your, your point on maybe the, the refocus for Lincoln is, is an interesting one, actually, I hadn't thought about. Um, I think the, the problem that I suppose many of us in this school have battled against um, in Lincoln is a generally a gravitation towards being a, a corporate sort of entity um, and seeing itself as almost as a business and, and being a very centralised corporate sort of system. If it's actually having to abandon a lot, a lot of the, the actual proper corporate side of things, you know, the actual things that can reasonably be described as a, as a business, i.e. the commercial stuff, if that's sort of going out the window for the, for the next nine months or, or so, um, it will be interesting to see how that changes how the union operates, I think, Um there's maybe a window there and and a, and a shift in values and focus and 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 a, and a change in how it operates that maybe the activists can can maybe work with that 
So, so that maybe is a silver lining. Um, and I, I do think it comes with problems as well, because I think I think the, the commercial side of things are doing very well at Lincoln. Um, well, traditionally, I think there have been questionable decisions, um, such as the, the Anthem mess up two years ago and, and the barge, I think, was a questionable decision as well. Um, but I, I think should it, I think commercial unions can be very useful for students' unions if they're doing well. And I, I think they have been doing reasonably well at Lincoln over, over the past few years in that they can get students that might not otherwise engage with, with more bread and butter issues of a students' union. They can get them in the door. They, they can get a sort of name recognition of the students' union. They can get people to think about the students' union a bit. And if, if, you know, a student's having a pint in your bar, then they might see things about society there or they, they might see something about elections on the wall. You know, so it, it is a good chance of trying to get, the you know, a small amount of engagement from students and that you can then maybe build with. So I do think not having those commercial venues w- will be a challenge for Lincoln um, in, in the next academic year. Um, but at the same time, could maybe be useful for activists that want to shift it more towards a, a, a more democratic sort of bottom up sort of organization as well and i i think lincoln is probably more exposed to to coronavirus and well the impacts of the pandemic than than a lot of smaller unions actually and most students unions um rely either exclusively or almost exclusively on the block grant from their from their university Um, now obviously that still makes up a good chunk of of lincoln su's income and but the SU has also begun to rely on on profits from its commercial venues over the last few years, and um, so I, I think that you know there's a number of services that that probably rely on um, some of the funding for, from the commercial venues that that they're able to pour into it, um, over and above just the block grant. So the fact that those commercial venues aren't really able to operate in the way they were before actually, ironically, exposes the bigger unions. And I'm sure Lincoln isn't alone in this. Um, but it will be a smaller number of bigger students' unions. They will probably actually struggle more than, than a lot of smaller unions that are just entirely reliant on the block grant from their university. Um, now, now, that might be a problem when it comes to renegotiating the block grant with the uni. I, I think that probably happened at about the time we were going into lockdown and, and over the summer. So I, I can't imagine too many universities have instantly started cutting block grants um, to, to students' unions, particularly as they're going to need students' unions over this year to get student buy-in. Um, but maybe next academic year, you might see some um, you might see some students unions begin to have to have a difficult conversation about their block grant from their university. But even then, I can't imagine many unis are going to like absolutely slash and burn block grants. So I, I would be really surprised if we saw that. So I think, ironically, smaller students unions are probably going to weather the storm a little bit better than bigger ones that have got bigger and fancier commercial venues. Yeah, and I suppose that's the 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 interesting debate is that. Perhaps those those student unions that are less business minded, less willing to open and explore bigger venues and investing in bars and pubs might actually be better positioned to weather the storm, as you say. So it'll be it'll be interesting to be watching um, yeah. going and, forward. And and of course, the flip side of that is that in theory, if you are able to be a bit more financially self self-sustaining like Lincoln has to some extent with it with its commercial venues you know it's, it still relies on the block grant but but it's got some financial autonomy with, with its commercial venues in theory that should be able to give you a bit more power when it comes to bargaining with the university and and, and challenging the university because you're not as reliant on the block grant as, as you might have otherwise been and the university will know that and um, but I, I mean we never I don't think we ever really saw that happen in Lincoln and um, I don't think the students you never really quite exploited that in the way it could have done and um, but that's you know that's just to say you know not not having commercial venues and, and being entirely reliant on a block grant isn't necessarily an ideal for students unions either because that can then come up with all sorts of issues of trying to challenge the university and that becoming a bit more difficult um but yeah certainly for, for the short term i think smaller students unions might, might be in a slightly better position than, than bigger ones yeah and i suppose Ultimately, it's always a good thing when you see a degree of separation between universities and students' unions, and they're willing to challenge decisions and represent students properly. So hopefully, as we've all echoed going forward, that the students' union here in Lincoln, and indeed students' unions across the country, can hold 
the uh, universities to account and represent their students effectively, regardless of the situation we find ourselves in. And also, we've had some more news in terms of holding people to account. The Lib Dems, remember them? They're, uh, they had another leadership election. Um, it was put on hold earlier this year due to COVID, but they've since held the, uh, the leadership election that they promised. And it was a competition between Ed Davey and Layla Moran. And Ed Davey himself managed to win 63.5% of the vote, whereas Miss Moran gained 36.5% of the vote, which means that Sir Ed Davey is now the leader of the Lib Dems on a full-time basis. So I suppose the question that I'd ask you, Callum, as somebody that knows a, a fair few Lib Dem activists, is what was the reaction within some of the ranks of the Lib Dems? It's probably no surprise that most of the Lib Dems I do know uh, were backing uh, Leila Moran as the, um, I suppose, the more left-wing, the more progressive candidate. Um, Ed Davey, I, I mean, he is um, he's known to be more or less in the pocket of energy companies. Um, he's, uh, I think he's alleged to have had some dodgy dealings with uh, EDF in particular. Um, but uh, yes, I, I think it's. Uh, I, I I think in retrospect, a lot of them uh, can see that it was possibly a foregone conclusion. Uh, he was uh, the acting leader before the election. Um, he's got that name recognition. He was a, a minister during the coalition years, which really should be a disadvantage from our perspective but i think it is a it's an advantage for some um from the perspective of some liberals um he uh and, and of course he what was quite notable actually is that uh, during the campaign itself um he actually started losing quite a lot of support uh, it was quite notable that some uh, people who had even made videos endorsing him uh, at the beginning of the campaign, withdrew those endorsements uh, as, time, as time went on. Um, he had a particularly uh, notable car crash interview with Julia Hartley Brewer. Now, Julia Hartley Brewer is uh, a right-wing commentator, of course, um, but he was actually quite um, rude to her, almost misogynistic, really, or actually misogynistic um, in that particular call and quite condescending. Um, so to someone who really should have been sympathetic. So, uh, yeah, it, but of course, with uh, these leadership elections, most people probably have cast their ballots in the first week or so um, when he was relatively high uh, in, in, in the polls, as it were. Uh, and that's, that's why he won. And I think it's... Um, there are there are from from the perspective of the Labour Party. I mean, because he is obviously uh, a complete right winger, we can probably assume that if uh, the Lib Dems were in a position to go into a coalition in a hung parliament, should that occur again, um, which is a very eminent possibility, um, he would probably be more likely to go in with the Tories yet again. Um, and I think that's. Um, uh, on one level, um, we could say that's that's a good thing because obviously that means they're less likely to split uh, the left wing vote. But of course, if you take a longer view of, of British politics, um, the last time when Labour was in government, um, they had the the Liberal Democrats had a much more progressive leader in the form of uh, Charles Kennedy. Uh, who was actually campaigning to the left of Labour throughout most of throughout most of the new Labour period, um, and some would argue that that was actually uh, helping to keep new Labour in check. Um, if you see what I mean, um, certainly it helps to uh, have uh, larger parties uh, sort of moving the Overton window to the left. Uh, so it is a bit of a it's a it's a bit of a tragedy really for British politics in general. Um, it probably doesn't make much of a difference uh, to the Labour Party's prospects in in the in the short term, um, or or really at all. Um, it just means that we have to now make the assumption that should we get a hung parliament uh, while Ed Davey is leader, 
uh, we can probably uh, count all of the Lib Dem seats in the Conservative camp, whereas Leila Moran would probably have gone in with Labour under those circumstances. Yes, I suppose it's it's a uh, one of the things that struck out for me really in this whole uh, Davy election is that again it's another London MP. So the three leaders of the three main parties, is if you like it, are all London MPs. Uh, we got two thirds and Boris Defecle Johnson, and he's very much a run of the mill centrist or right of centre politician. So. In terms of giving us any sort of a difference or any um, any sort of kick up the arse for the Labour Party, if you like, it's, it's not very present. Um, it's not very inspiring. I can imagine those on the left of the Liberal Democrats, as, as, as you alluded to, are very much despairing that there's no uh, champion of any real progressive politics coming through. And obviously those allegations of, of corruption or being in the pocket of energy companies is certainly nothing to wear as a badge of honour to have as a leader. Um, Bradley, what was your reaction to the uh, to the election of, of Ed Davey? Well, it was all just a bit too predictable, wasn't it? Um, it it's, it's a bit like the Lib Dems haven't really learnt much um, since the coalition years. Um I think there are people, you know, on the left of the Lib Dems that that can be good allies in in political battles. And I, I think discussions I've had with some of them in the past have, have tried to suggest that the party had sort of moved on from from the coalition years and, and regretted um, a lot of the decisions made in the coalition years. Um, but I don't really see how that can stand up to, to scrutiny now. Their their leader um, is is someone that you know was absolutely instrumental to, to those years. Um, I, I don't. I don't really know what the Lib Dems stand for. I think I suppose it, it's a chance for them to to give that message now. I think they'll. A lot of their battles the last few years have, have been over Brexit, haven't they? And they they focus very much on on the Brexit issue. So it will be interesting to see how they position themselves now with with the Labour Party that, that no longer has um, a fairly radical leader. You know, I think whatever you think of Keir Starmer, he he's not Corbyn. Um, and, he, and he's not to the le- as much to the left as Corbyn was. Um, so it will be interesting to see how the Lib Dems try and position themselves over domestic issues now that, that Brexit perhaps isn't going to be as prominent as it was. Um, but uh, yeah, I suppose ultimately it was a, uh, my, my reaction was, of, of course, he's leader. Yeah, it's it's rather disappointing. Callum, you wanted to come in. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, saw, I more or less agree with what... Um... Bradley just said I think a lot of it what it demonstrates is that um, unfortunately although some people did change their mind uh, Liberal Democrats haven't acknowledged their mistake Um, and I think people underestimate really the damage that the 2010 results did not just to the Liberal Democrats themselves but also to British politics in general and they spent um, a decade and a half campaigning to the left of Labour and in 2010 would have expected um, their party to go into coalition and sort of probably be a check on the on the power of Labour. That's what they wanted. Um, but then, of course, they took all of those left wing votes and then used them to go into coalition with um, a right wing uh, conservative government. Um, and that's, you know, things like um, Brexit, for example, that it, there are multiple causes for it, but I would argue that one of the, the biggest ones was probably an increase in voter disillusionment um, as, as a result of that decision. Um, and until they kind of acknowledge that and, and move away, then there might, might not be a place for the Liberal Democrats uh, in, in, in British politics, except um, as a vassal of the Conservative Party. Um, We'll just have to see what happens with them. Of course, one one thing that they do have, um, liberal activists, is whereas people who are involved in labour movements are generally involved because uh, to sort of protect their class interests, if you like. You know, we join our trade unions. The trade unions are uh, deeply embedded in the Labour Party. The Labour Party 
pretty much has a monopoly actually on funding from trade unions and therefore from the working class. So it's a very much class-based movement. Whereas people who are Liberal Democrats, uh, they join much more for idealistic reasons. They join, you know, because because they they believe uh, in that sort of liberal philosophy. Um, and what will be very interesting to see uh, happen with them um, is whether this actually precipitates a split in due course um, between what they would call the the orange bookers, who are basically the right wingers within the party, the more Blairites we would consider it, free marketeers and so on, classical liberals, um, and the social liberals who are uh, more like the sort of new liberals of the early 20th century. You know, they believe in a welfare state, equality of uh, opportunity and that sort of thing. Um, it would be interesting to see whether they split, um, because at the end of the day, they've really got not much to lose. Um, in, in, in that respect, because they, they wouldn't be losing funding from any big trade unions. Um, it's more about ideals, as I say. So we could see what happens um, more on the continent where you have a liberal party of the, of the left um, and a liberal party of the right, like the FDP, which nearly always goes into coalition with Nicola Merkel's um, uh, Christian conservatives. Um, but I mean, I spent, I caution, I, I spent a lot of the um, coalition years believing that that might happen um, and it didn't. And of course, they still face the same prospect of uh, having to uh, uh, work with first past the post as well. So uh, it'll be it'll be interesting to see what happens. They, they could split away. I mean, they're on six percent at the moment. So as I say, they've not got much to lose if the progressives decide to break away. Um, they've got their own equivalent of momentum, which is called the the, the radical association or the the RA, which sounds a little bit too close to the IRA for, for me, but um, uh, it's uh, but they they've got that, so that so they could um, they could form a new party and break away. But uh, I'm not a liberal democrat; I have no intention of being that. It's not really my politics. But from a uh, the perspective of a an ex political student. Uh, someone who enjoys learning and observing politics uh, from a somewhat objective perspective, I think it will be fascinating to see how uh, Liberal Democrats responds to this uh, turn of events um, over the next few years. Yes, and um, sort of you spoke about the, the echoes of, of the coalition, certainly uh, Ed Davey being one of those prominent Lib Dem figures that has, has the... Uh, the pleasure of being tarnished by being in that coalition as a as a prominent figure for the Lib Dems. Um, I'll just sort of read a bit of his his uh, victory speech, and he says, "Nationally, our party has lost touch with too many voters." He said, "Yes, we are powerful advocates locally. Our campaigners listen to local people, work hard for communities, and deliver results. But at the national level, we have to face the facts of three disappointing general elections." The truth is, voters don't believe the Liberal Democrats want to help ordinary people get on with life. It is now time for us to start listening. And as leader, I've got that message. I am listening now. And obviously, I suppose what, what strikes me from that is that they, they realise how much the last decade has really damaged their brand as a political party that's meant to be offering an alternative and getting into bed with the Tories certainly has damaged them, but also the whole Brexit um, saga has, has also damaged them in, in the eyes of many. And I would say that maybe he may sort of rejuvenate a passion for the Liberal Democrats. My initial assumption would be that it is it will probably be the opposite. As I say, he's a very sort of run-of-the-mill centrist candidate and a run-of-the-mill centrist leader um, and with them polling so low as you say and people within the party themselves very much out of out of touch at the moment with their leadership and feeling like they're not being listened to somebody that's asking well saying that he's going to be listening um, it should should in theory listen to them but as we know that rarely happens so we'll We'll finish up there. We've almost had our hour. It's been, we've certainly covered a lot. Any closing remarks from uh, Bradley or Callum?
No, that's quite, I'm, I'm quite happy with that. As I say, uh, it's very interesting to see what happens um, yes. with with uh, with politics in general. Um, we'll see if we have the same prime minister in a few months. Um, we we don't even know if that would be the case. So, but uh, we'll we'll be here to monitor it, of course. Yep, we'll be here as always with our uh, take on the politics and the news of of the week. Uh, Bradley, anything else to add to that? Just, just the usual. Stay safe, folks. Um, yeah, we, potentially a second wave is on the way, so just be be sensible and and, and be safe. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. We've we've lost Ollie. His his internet connection is gone, but um, I'm sure he'd say thank you for listening and, and goodbye, Callum. Goodbye. Goodbye. And Bradley, goodbye. See you, folks. Thanks all for listening again.